Today I want to tell you a great story. There's a director, a filmmaker named Ken Burns. He went on to win an Emmy and was nominated for some Academy Awards for his documentaries on baseball and the Brooklyn Bridge and national parks. Maybe you've heard of him, Ken Burns. But he was asked the question, what makes a great story? So this is a guy who makes stories for a living, tells stories for a living. So in his expert opinion, his response was this. He recited a formula, which is kind of surprising for an artsy guy to give a mathematical formula in response to the question. But what makes a great story? Here's his answer. He says one plus one equals three. I told you he's artsy. Math, not his strong point here. But here's what he means by that. Here's what he went on to explain. He said that a great story exists where the whole of the story is greater than the sum of its parts. And here's what he means by that. He went on to say that in the extra number, the one plus one equals three, because that's where great stories lurk. It's in that extra component that makes good stories great. So one plus one equals three. So today is Easter Sunday, and I can and I will tell you the components of the Easter story, but my guess is that many of you have probably heard parts of the Easter story before. I can tell you about the death and the resurrection, spoiler alert, of Jesus. I can tell you about Jesus being betrayed by his close friends, by being betrayed by Judas with a kiss. I can tell you about the arrest of Jesus and the soldiers that came to arrest him fell down before him. I can tell you that Jesus was beaten, that he was mocked, that he was crucified, that Jesus was nailed to a tree. I can tell you that the soldiers there gambled for his clothing, that eventually the disciples, as we talked about on Friday, backed away in fear. I can tell you that the last ones that were there at the foot of the cross, the Marys, Mary Magdalene, Mary, Jesus' mother, and John, the beloved disciple. I can also tell you, though, on the third day, something happened that no one thought was remotely possible. But that early Sunday morning, Those women came to the grave expecting to find a dead body to put spices on, but they were very surprised when they came and the tomb was empty and the stone was rolled away and the angel said, as we've already spoken this morning, he's not here. Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is risen just like he said. So again, I can tell you the components of the Easter story. I can give you the one plus one. But again, many of you have heard this before. But that's not where the good story becomes a great story. This story is a great story because there is something else massive, lingering, lurking in the hidden number. Easter is the epitome of one plus one equals three. So what's the extra number? That's what I want to share with you this morning in my brief time that I have. It's tucked away at the 
at the end of John chapter 19. So if you have a Bible, feel free to open up to John chapter 19. I do have some of this on the screen as well. John chapter 19, verse 38. Today we're going to do some Easter math. One plus one equals three. John writes and says, After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, he came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. Is there more? No? Well, I messed up putting that slide together. Let me find where I'm at here. There we go. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had been yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. So this section of John 19 begins with this phrase, after these things. After what things? Well, after the things that I just kind of recounted to you, all the Good Friday things. Jesus' betrayal, his arrest, his beating, his crucifixion, his statements on the cross, finally declaring it is finished, him breathing his last. Jesus was declared dead by the Roman centurion, a professional executioner. It's the point where they pierced his side and blood and water flowed. And then before we get to then Easter Sunday, before we get to the rest of the story, John gives us some more information. He tells us about a few more people and he adds a few more pieces here. He gives us some details about Nick and Joe and Mary. This is an Easter with Joe and Nick and Mary. Because it's an Easter for Paul and Alexa and Ryan, Stephen, Brian, Marvy. Easter with Joe and Nick and Mary. Let me talk about these few people that are part of this little story that John gives us in between Jesus' death and his resurrection. First, we learn about Joe. Verse 38, Joe is Joseph of Arimathea. I call Joseph of Arimathea the third place Joseph in the Bible. This is not coat of many colors, Joseph, in the Old Testament. This is not Joseph, the father of Jesus. This is the other Joseph. This is Joseph of Arimathea. Those other Joes are very well known. This one is from this place, Arimathea, a town just north of Jerusalem in the region of the Galilee. We haven't heard about him at this point so far. But what's interesting is wherever you read about Easter, Good Friday and Easter in the Bible, you will hear this person's story told. All four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, include Joe. All four gospel writers, not all four gospels talk about every single thing that happened as the, again, it's not like it's competing, but they give different perspectives. But Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all mention Joseph of Arimathea. 
And from the four gospel writers, here's what we learn. Joseph of Arimathea, he is rich. He is wealthy. He has plenty of money. Matthew tells us that. We know that he has power. Mark's gospel tells us that. We're told that he was a respected member of the council, meaning he was a part of the Sanhedrin. So he has power, religious power, political power. Luke tells us that he's a man of character. Luke says that he was a good and righteous man. Also, we find out that he was looking for the kingdom of God. Mark says that, Luke says that. And he is a disciple of Jesus. John says a secret one. So it's really interesting to to look and and listen to Joseph's life and story, and you see all sorts of tensions are in play for Joe. He's rich, he's powerful, he has money, he has affluence, he has title, he has position, and he's eagerly seeking God. He wants justice in this world. He wants things to be right. He's seeking God's ways to break in, and he has decided to be a follower of Jesus, but he doesn't want anyone to know. Why? Because he's rich and powerful and has title and has position, and he's a Jewish leader, and so he'd rather keep that in the dark. He's afraid of the Jews, we're told. He's afraid of what will happen if that information goes public. To do that would be extremely risky. It would be putting it all on the line. The money, the power, the title, it may all disappear. You know, fear is a powerful thing. And so you just sense Joseph is just torn. Imagine what these days had been like for him. Just agonizing. Again, he has chosen to follow Jesus. But he also was the respected member of the Sanhedrin. Which means when Jesus was arrested, Joseph was aware and said nothing. And when Jesus was betrayed... Joseph was aware and said nothing. And when Jesus was on trial, Joseph was there and said nothing. Luke mentions that he did not consent to the action of the ruling council, but he didn't speak up and stop them. So Joseph is this person, he's caught in a trap. He's caught between allegiances in fear. I follow Jesus, but no one knows. And I have this title and position. And if I speak up, what will happen? And so he just sits there and he watches it all go down. And now at this point, the dominoes have fallen and Jesus is dead. And his body is up there on the cross. And for some time, he'd been a secret disciple. Like, don't tell anyone. What does Joseph of Arimathea do? Verse 38. It says that he went to Pilate, Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor. He went to more power, and he asked for the body of Jesus. Can you imagine how nerve-wracking that would have been for him as a member of the Sanhedrin to go and ask for the body of Jesus? That may not seem like much to you, but this is huge for a person with that much on the line. 
He steps out of the shadows. He steps out of secrecy from being a secret disciple to being someone who asks for the body of Jesus. And that's why all four gospel writers talk about this, that Joseph at this point in time is the only disciple of Jesus who doesn't run away, but rather runs to Pilate and says, I want his body. In spite of what the Jews would think, in spite of what Pilate might think, Joseph chooses the right fear, and he receives the body of Jesus. And Luke's gospel tells us that he is the one who took the body of Jesus down from the cross. Can you imagine what that would have been like? My guess is that Joseph, with a lot of money and a lot of power and a lot of authority, he probably wasn't used to doing manual labor. He probably didn't get his hands dirty very often. And being a member of the Sanhedrin, he didn't touch dead bodies because that would make you unclean. And yet here's Joseph, who previously has been in the shadows, secretly following Jesus, who says, I want you. And he takes the body of Jesus down from the cross and he gets his hands beyond dirty, bloody. Joseph pushes through all of the religious rules and titles, all the barriers and the secret following, and he holds the body of Jesus and he wraps him in linen cloths and prepares him to be put in the tomb. What would move someone to step out of the shadows? What would make someone overcome their deepest fear? What would move someone from silence to request such a thing? What would coax a secret disciple to face ultimate power in Pilate to ask for the body of Jesus? I'll tell you what, the love of Easter. One plus one equals three. But that's Joe. Can we talk about Nick? So in verse 39... In verse 39, we hear this. It says, Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, he came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So if you've read the book of John before, this is not the first time we've heard about this guy. We've already met Nicodemus before, and that's back in John chapter three. And you begin to connect the dots, like, oh yeah, I remember Nicodemus now. John chapter three, a religious leader, a Jew, he wanted to talk to Jesus, but he was too afraid to do it during the daytime, so he went and talked to Jesus secretly at night. Here you have another man in power, scared to death, but he's curious. John 3.16, that famous verse, comes out of that encounter between Jesus and Nicodemus. So again, here we have this person who's so afraid to be seen with Jesus publicly, he kind of cowers and has a conversation under cover of night. Now many Days, weeks later, many years later, here he is engaging Jesus. Now Jesus is dead. And again, we have someone with title and position and prominence and religious authority, lots and lots of fear. But now, as Joseph takes the body down, what is Nicodemus doing? He's gathering myrrh and aloes because he's there to prepare Jesus' body for burial. He's partnering with Joe. So here we have Nick and Joe, two very unlikely characters coming together 
after the death of Jesus, stepping out of the shadow of fear into the light of the cross. And I would say Nicodemus does one of the most courageous things ever. When all the disciples have scattered, he's willing to help prepare Jesus' body for burial. No one wants to associate with Jesus now, but Nicodemus is ready to. And what he does, it's worth noting. What is Nicodemus carrying? What does the text say? Myrrh and aloe. Now, I'm not sure how familiar you are with Jewish burial. I can tell you I don't know a whole lot about Jewish burial. I know more about Taylor Swift than Jewish burial. And that's not saying much. But this action here, John 19.39, is not normal. Let me just give you a, a brief introduction. The reason why people packed in these spices was because of the way that the ancients did burial. It was really expensive to carve out a cave and a tomb. And so typically, the, uh, a tomb would not just be for one person. So eventually, you would put a body in the tomb, and you would pack it with spices, aloe, myrrh, and other spices. And then when it decomposed, you would take the bones that were left, and you put them in a bone box or an ossuary, or you would scoot it back to the back of the cave for another body to be used. You didn't just, it wasn't single-use tombs. And so that's why the spices were needed, because the body was going to decompose there. So you're trying to keep the smell down. You're trying to keep it not stinky. So again, burial, cloth, spices, all of that is normal. How much is Nicodemus showing up with? Nicodemus was ripped. <laughs> He's bringing in 75 pounds of, of, of spice. And just again, to put this into kind of comparison, there's a story earlier in the Gospels where Mary comes back in John 12 and she cracks open this expensive ointment that was worth a year's salary. In John 12, we're told that she brought one pound worth a year's salary. One pound worth a year's salary. Do the math. This is a lavish, over-the-top. He's bringing 75 times that in terms of smell, in terms of weight, in terms of expense. This is, this is spices fit for a king. This is a lavish display of love. This is not just how do I keep the body from stinking. This is I'm going to pour out my riches upon the body of this person. Both men, rich, powerful, titled, religious, with everything to lose, showing extravagant love. What would make someone pack in 75 pounds of myrrh and aloe? Easter kind of love. One plus one equals three. But just so you know, Easter isn't just about rich, powerful men. There's also Mary, 
This is the next line, next chapter. This is John chapter 20. After Joseph takes the body down, after Nicodemus brings in his hall of spices for the body of Jesus, after Holy Saturday passes in silence and inactivity early Sunday morning, someone comes to the grave and her name is Mary and the other women too. But let's focus on Mary. John chapter 20 verse 1. On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. Now the Mary story is beautiful and complex and I won't take the time to tell it all in full. In read John 20, there's a beautiful encounter that Jesus has with her. But for the sake of time, I just want to point out Mary's participation in this story. Who's Mary? Don't just get your information from movies or the Da Vinci Code. The Gospels tell us about this Mary. Her name is Mary Magdalene, Mary from the town of Magdala, a fishing village on the western side of the Sea of Galilee. She's mentioned 12 times in the Gospels. She's not an insignificant figure. She loved Jesus. But the reason why she loved Jesus was because Jesus loved her. Luke chapter eight tells us a little bit of her background. It says the 12 were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. So here's this. Mary's story is filled with trauma and pain. Seven demons had gone out from her. Other texts tied to her story cite a sexually promiscuous past. I'm not sure if that's true or not, but there was no doubt that Mary was an outcast in society. No doubt she carried deep scars of rejection and shame. No doubt that her demonic oppression that showed up in her life made finding her place in religious places difficult. She was not welcome. She had no money, she had no title, she had no religious leadership, but she loved Jesus, because Jesus set her free. Jesus loved her like no one else. You see, Mary was more than her past and more than the labels and more than the nicknames that maybe were thrown her way, more than her sketchy history, more than the scars. Jesus loved Mary. Jesus welcomed her, set her free, transformed her life, and invited her to be a part of the company, of the fellowship of those that loved and followed him, which explains Mary's presence at the tomb that morning and the emotion, why her tears that day. Jesus was her everything. Jesus was her life, her belonging, her freedom, her healing, her friend, her world. But now he seemed dead, and he was dead, and it seemed like all hope that was blossoming had now been ripped out and declared dead. 
And so now she's there trying to find his dead body and she can't even find that. She's like, where's his body? I'm here for his body and it's gone. Someone took him, where is he? I don't know. She wanted to honor him one more time. She wanted to touch him one more time to anoint him for burial, to properly embalm him, to treat him with dignity and respect because he had treated her with dignity and respect when nobody else would. So these are the people that bridge Good Friday and Easter Sunday. This is Easter with Joe and Nick and Mary. Nick, who used to ask questions under cover of night. Joe, who secretly followed Jesus with everything to lose. Mary with wounds and scars and shame and a haunted past. I just want you to see, my friends, the beauty of the story of Easter, because here's the punchline of John's story. This is the point of Easter. This is where one plus one equals three. Where is Jesus buried? Where is he buried? In a tomb. Where's the tomb? In a garden. In a garden. John tells us that Jesus is buried in a tomb, in a garden. A garden. Hmm. Where have I heard about that story before? Where is there a garden in the story of Scripture? You're like, ah, Gethsemane, go further back. All the way back. All the way back to the Garden of Eden. John reminds us that this body of Jesus is buried in a cave, in a tomb, in a garden, where humanity got its start in a garden, where the first rebellion began in the garden. We're back in the garden again, and now we're getting to the point of Easter and the power of the story where finally human rebellion meets God's great rescue plan for what happened back in the first garden is now being undone in the second garden and resurrection hope is emerging out of the ground to deal with sin and Satan and suffering and all that had happened since the beginning of time that God is rescuing his people to be with himself and there's new hope and there's new life and the story of Nick and Joe and Mary is that people can change and they're not defined by their sin and they're not defined by their past, but through the power of the cross, there's resurrection life that comes. And one plus one now equals three. Guess what? The story of Easter is not just about these ancient people a few thousand years ago, but it's that the power of Jesus has come to offer you new life. This is for you to have a new hope and for us to have a new story, a new humanity, a new redemptive plan of God come to fruition through the death, life, resurrection of Jesus. Because we have chosen wrong fears. Like I read this story like, oh man, I know what that feels like to want to be a secret disciple of Jesus. I don't want some people to know. They ask me, what do you do for a living? I'm like, uh... My pastor? What kind of pastor? Christian pastor? <laughs> Jesus follower? There's times I would much rather talk to Jesus under cover of night. There's times I would much rather people not know that I love Jesus. It's easier that way. I get fear. I get shame. I get their stories. I get when I've chosen the wrong king, where I endure sin and brokenness. 
I get the fact that we've been tormented by Satan and sin and death, and we've been wronged by a whole host of people that have left their mark in our story. But because of Jesus, things can change. Because he died, deep, real, lasting transformation is possible. It's really easy as human beings to think, I'm stuck. I'm stuck. It's really easy for me to believe things are always going to be this way. I guess I'm just always doomed to be lonely. I guess I'm just always doomed to be lazy. I guess I'm just always going to be stuck in a dead-end, no-win marriage. I guess I'm stuck where my fears are always going to get the best of me. I guess I'm always just going to be an addict. I guess it's just going to be the way it is. I'm always going to go back for more. I guess I'm always going to feel this way. I'm always going to live in anger or bitterness or resentment. I guess this is just the way it is. No, the gospel declares that things can change. The gospel declares that people can change. The gospel declares that you can change. Look at Joe. Look at Nick. Look at Mary. The resurrection of Jesus declares that God's resurrection power has broken into this broken world to set us free. Out of the garden grows a new life. There's a new tomb in a new garden with a new humanity. And with any good story, there's a tension of choice. What will you do with that? Jesus invites, believe in me, trust me, follow me. You see the seeds, they're sprouting. They're seeds of new beginning. Seeds where there's new life that breaks forth out of the ground. I invite you to listen to Nick and Joe and Mary. This is not ancient history, but the great Easter story offered to you. You too can experience the change that happens when by faith, You follow Jesus out of the dirt, out of the grave, new Easter life for all who repent and believe. One plus one equals three. Forgive me if I seem a little urgent today. Forgive me if I feel a little pushy about this. But this story and its implications demand a response. And I think I'm feeling that urgency even a bit differently in light of the last couple weeks. In light of all that's happened in our world, for sure. But as many of you that have been a part of our church have heard, when we bought this building last fall, we inherited a few tenants. A church runs this out on Sunday nights, and they'll be here tonight, New Beginnings Church. We're excited to share with them. But we also inherited a tenant. His name's Adam. And he rented out the commercial kitchen. And Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday mornings, he would come in at 6 a.m. and bake bagels and sell them on his website. About a week and a half, Tuesday morning, I walked through the sanctuary right here. The lights were off. And a police officer shone a flashlight through the sanctuary, and it scared me half to death. And I turned the lights on, and he came and told me the news. That that morning, around 6.30 a.m., Adam was downstairs in the kitchen baking bagels like he always does. 
and he had cardiac arrest. Started feeling chest pains. And he called 911, and the ambulance came and met him in the alley, and they weren't able to revive him, and he passed away. He was like in his late 30s. Like super healthy, dude. He has a daughter, I think maybe even two. I just met him last fall when we started renting the building to him. And he passed away. And I think in that story, in re- the reality of that brings death back to the foreground again. Life is short. Life is short. We aren't guaranteed anything. And so like never before, there's a sense of urgency to let you know and to let others know that there is grace and forgiveness and hope and life in Jesus, whether this be our last day or not. May we come to experience the wild delight of God's creative power that we celebrate in Easter. If you're someone here this morning that has not yet come to believe and trust in Jesus, may you hear an open invitation to believe in faith and receive hope and life in him. He is that good. And I pray that you would come to discover that too. Let me pray. Jesus, the crucified one, the risen one, the one who has given us forgiveness of sin, restored us into relationship with the Father, and invited us into the life of the kingdom of heaven. We thank you for your great life. We thank you for your great death. We thank you for your powerful resurrection and for the hope of freedom and change of new things through your powerful work on our behalf. So God, I pray. God, I pray for anyone in the room this morning. I'm not sure what their story is. Maybe it's a a lot like Nick or Joe or Mary, or maybe it's in a different strand or a different stream. But Lord, you know. And your desire is to offer them that which you offer to all by faith. Forgiveness, life, joy, peace, and hope. Begins with a yes of faith. And then it follows with a lifetime of following you. Lord, may we afresh be reminded of Easter hope, the greatness of the story, of what you're doing in and through us today. May we have eyes to see and a willingness to follow you and take you at your word. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.